be back and to be to be with you guys, for everybody to be back here. We had a great break. Uh, we, as in the Boundless crew that, that stuck around, um, really enjoyed that. And it's exciting to be back. New semester, new year, new decade. I mean, hey, that's, that's, that's pretty exciting. Uh, but what's most exciting to me is that I get to get back in the letter of Ephesians. And I see a notification here. Let me close this out. So Ephesians, I can only speak for myself, but it's, it's been thrilling to my own soul. And uh, I'm excited to pick it back up and start in chapter 4. And it's a great place. Chapter 4 is really a great place to start in the semester because if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, you know that this is the second half of his letter. Ephesians divides nicely into really two halves. And in these final three chapters, beginning in chapter 4, Paul's really concerned about one overarching thing. If you want to boil it down, uh, he is concerned about how we walk. That's to use his terms, how we walk. And this, this concept of, of walking pops up again and again in the, in the back half of this letter. So just by way of introduction, let's just, let's just take a look at this. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in our, our text today, we're going to go over this, but right out of the gate, this, this walking imagery, Paul uses this. He's concerned about our walk. Look down in verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You see the theme? Popping up again and again, isn't it? Uh, Paul is concerned in the back half of this letter about how we walk. Now, what does that mean? What does walk mean? Is he concerned? <laughs> Sorry, this is random, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's not in my notes. Have you guys ever seen the ministry of silly walks? I'm dating myself. Yeah, one person. I've heard of one. Yes, anybody else? So go look that up on YouTube after this is over. Not now. All right? And you'll laugh hard at that. Okay. <laughs> how is that related? Paul is not talking literally about how we walk. Okay? Uh, but he is talking about a metaphor. Okay? So the metaphor of, of walking. He's using, he's using walk as a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for your lifestyle, the way you live your life. So Paul is concerned in these chapters with, with how we live. And Paul desires us to, to progressively, to be progressive, or Paul desires to see us progressively transformed. 
He wants us to grow in how we, we think and how we act. In, in particular, he wants us to think and act like Jesus. And that's the goal of the, of the back half of this letter. It's going to come up again and again and again. But as we, as we launch into the second half of this letter, really for the rest of the semester, Paul's not going to let us forget about the first half. And in fact, these, these two halves are, are fundamentally connected. Notice uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So that this, here's the hinge going from the first half to the second half of this letter, and he's introducing it with therefore. So any of you grammarians know that therefore is just an inference. So Paul's drawing an inference on everything that's gone, gone before. He's essentially saying, in light of these things, in light of what I just said, you should do this. What I'm going to say follows logically from what I just told you. And this is really important as we're, as we're going to get going, as we're talking this semester about our lives and growth. One really important just introductory observation here is that the truth is fundamental. It's fundamental to our growth. It's fundamental to being transformed, to have any lasting change. In other words, we must believe by faith what Paul said about us in chapters 1 through 3 in order to live what he commands in chapters 4 through 6. Make sense? We have to believe by faith. We've got to grasp, believe, see, rely on everything he said in chapters 1 through 3 if we're going to live out the vision of chapters 4 through 6. And in those first three chapters... What's Paul's burden? What's he trying to do? Well, his burden is to deepen our understanding of all that God has done for us in Christ. More specifically, he wants us to glimpse the great glory of his grace demonstrated in our salvation when he saved us. He wants us to realize that we've been chosen by the Father, chapter 1, and all that that entails. He wants us to realize that we've been raised from the dead. That we've been given new resurrection life. That we've been outfitted for good works. All in chapter 2. He wants us to realize that we're God's new humanity now. That we've been raised up and recreated through Christ to learn to live like we were intended to live from the very beginning. Now that we're in Christ, Jew and Gentile are fundamentally, Paul says in chapter 2 and 3, united. Jew and Gentile come together in a united humanity, a unified, singular body of Christ. As one family of God. And this is what God intended all the way back in Genesis 1 when he created humanity in the, from the very beginnings. And we went off track in Genesis 3. Paul now calls us the one new man, or the one new humanity, that God himself has recreated in Christ. Look in chapter 2. Again, all this is, is an on-ramp to where we're going today. Chapter 2, 14. Verse 14, it says, For he himself, 
is our peace, talking about Christ, who has made us both one. You see that? Both meaning both groups, Jews and everybody else. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, Old Covenant had set up a wall between Jews and Gentiles and to become part of the covenant, you had to become part of ethnic Israel. Now, in the New Covenant, that wall has been torn down, Paul says here, by the Messiah. Now, Gentiles can come in as Gentiles by faith in Jesus. So, that's the idea. So, the wall has been torn down, this dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? In order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two So making peace. That was the goal of the cross, is to create a unified new humanity, forgiven of their sins, cleansed, and outfitted to live in the way that God is now intending his humanity to live. And Paul knows that the more we grasp these truths by faith, who we are as his new humanity, the new power that we now have, what exactly that he's called us to, the more we grasp these things, it will radically change how we view ourselves. And as a result, how we change. It will progressively, but very visibly, transform us into people who reflect God, who think and act like Jesus in the world. So here in in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul turns the corner in the letter. So he's laid out this glorious vision of who we are in Christ, what he's done for us. And now he's turning the corner. He starts the second half of the letter by passionately calling us to live our lives in accordance with these realities that he's just described. So let's look again in chapter 4. We'll go ahead and, and read our text for this morning. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all or I'm sorry, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul turns this corner and he passionately calls us in verse 1 to live worthy lives, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To live worthy or to live worthily of something is just to live, live up to it. That's kind of how we would say it today. You know, you have the family name, so live up to the family name, right? Or... or Live in accordance with her. Live consistently with something. And he says to live consistently of what? He says live consistently of the calling of which you've been called or by which you've been called. And that really brings all of chapters 1 through 3 to the foreground again. He's saying live in light of this call that God has made on your life. God has spoken into the darkness of your soul and created life. So, 
If you're here, you've heard the gospel and you believe the gospel, you say, oh, I just I heard the gospel of my parents or class or my friend, and I trusted Jesus. The reason you did that, the reason you trusted Jesus, the reason your dead soul sprang up to life and trusted Christ is because he worked new life in you. That's the reality. That's the call of God that Paul is talking about here. So we are to live our lives in accordance or, or in the reality and consistent with this call that he's called us to. And this call includes the hope of our destiny, of, of being citizens of the kingdom, reigning with Christ. So we're to live up to that. We're to live worthily of that or live consistently with that call. We're to live in accordance with our, our new identity as the new humanity of God now on earth. We're to live in accordance with this new and unified creation. And this passionate call, um, it really governs all of what we're going to cover this semester. Okay, All of this is introduction. All right. I've been holding off on my slide because I didn't want to... You guys are probably like, hey, he's still on the announcement slide. What's he doing? Does he, did he forget? No. Um, but this, this call governs all of what we're going to cover this semester. So I'm calling our series... Oh, look at that. Anticlimactic. <laughs> have to do it the old-fashioned way. Boom. Still anticlimactic. Are we frozen? What's going on here? You guys are just dying to know, right? I might just leave it up here the rest of the time. <laughs> oh, it's not that good. Uh, it's called the it's called New Creation Life, all right, with a cool butterfly on there. Was that worth the wait? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. I'm glad, Joby. I'm glad it was worth the wait. All right, so I don't know how long it will take us, eight or nine messages probably, to, to cover what I, in my mind is, is the new creation life in these, these, at least chapters four and five. And basically, I, I'm framing it up this way because I want you to see that all these commands and exhortations in the last half of this letter is essentially God's charter for his new humanity. Okay? It's how he wants us to live as his people on earth. Now, today, without glorified bodies, okay? Still with propensities in the flesh. All those things happening. And he wants us to, to live in accordance with or up to the calling with which he's called us, which is the new creation that has begun to dawn within us in our hearts. So, new creation life is the title of the series, and, and we're going to let Paul unpack for us exactly how we should live as God's new humanity. So, you're turning the corner in this letter, if you're Paul. It's pretty important. You got an exhortation to start out with. You know, you're going to lead off with. What are you going to say? Think about that for a second. What would be your marching orders for the new humanity? Right? This glorious calling. I mean, he said things that are just unfathomable. That we, that the Spirit of God resides in us as his end-time temple. That we are going to be filled with all the fullness of God, chapter 3. So many things that are incredible about who we are. What would you say, Paul? What is our opening charter as this new humanity? What's our BHAG, right? Well, it's very ordinary and uh, very difficult, okay? <laughs> I'm calling them four indispensable characteristics 
or this title, this message, this one is just part one, is indispensable characteristics of the new humanity. And what I love about this, what I think is amazing that you're going to see, is how ordinary, how difficult, how realistic these things are, how basic these things are, and sadly, how neglected these things are in the church. All right? So let's get after it. Four indispensable characteristics of the new humanity. Number one, humility. Humility. This is the first indispensable characteristic of the new humanity. This is what God wants us to walk in and learn to walk in as his church. Notice what he says. I urge you, verse 1, prisoner for the Lord. By the way, he appeals to being a prisoner here because that was, that's like the worst thing ever in society for the people in the Greco-Roman period. It's bad for us too. But it's a very humbling experience. And he just got through saying in chapter 3, that he was in prison for their sakes, preaching the gospel so that they could come to believe. And that's what got him in prison. And he's glad to suffer for them. He tells them not to lose heart over what he's suffering for them because it's their glory. So Paul, as he's appealing to being a prisoner, is modeling for them this humble attitude and humble characteristic. I think that's why that's in there. All right, back to the the text. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling which you've been called all right, flesh that out for me, Paul, with all humility and gentleness. We'll take the first word, with all humility. The very first description Paul gives of our new life is that it must be one of humility. It must, must be one of humility. You and I, as the church, should be fundamentally humble people. Humble people. So what is it? What is humility? Well, it's a kind of an elusive quality to grasp, isn't it? It's like the moment you think you're humble, you're not. All right? Uh, and it seems that at the heart of humility is a, is a lowliness before God. A lowliness before God, or perhaps better, a submissiveness to God. A submissive trusting in God. It, doesn't, it, it can't be dependent on sin. Okay, because Jesus was humble. Think about that. Humble and lowly of heart. He was submissive, low before God. He didn't count equality God a thing to, to grasp for himself. But for us, as creatures, we're in a whole different class. And then as sinful creatures, we're in a whole other class. Okay? So we're like twice removed from Jesus. And so we have all the more reason to be humble. To be lowly. Peter says, in this idea of submissiveness, 1 Peter 5, 6, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I think that's getting at this submissive idea. Humble yourself. Bring yourself low under the mighty hand of God. Humility is the very opposite of pride. We know that. But pride is exalting and esteeming yourself. Paul says it like this in in Philippians. He he brings them together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's the pride. But in humility, 
count others more significant than yourself. That was revolutionary in the Greco-Roman world. This was a weakness in the Greco-Roman world. And notice here in our text that Paul doesn't just say we should live with humility. And that's hard enough. But he says we should live with all humility. All humility. In other words, if we see ourselves clearly as we are, we shouldn't be proud at all. There's no room for it. There's no room for bragging or boasting in the church. If we really believe what Paul described for us in the first three chapters, then we will inevitably be humble people. Think about these humility-producing truths that we saw in chapters 1 through 3, okay? Think about this. In and of yourself, you were completely dead in sin and hostile to God. Even if Satan and the world stopped influencing you, you would have never repented on your own. You were enslaved to your sinful desires. Even the faith that you exercised in Jesus, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, was a gift to you when you didn't deserve it. Wow. If you believe that, can you be proud? I mean, that like lays the axe to the root of all of our pride. And beyond that, another truth, God actually chose you. He chose you to lavish his eternal love on you, chapter 1. Not because of anything good in you, but simply because he deeply desired to love you. Simply because he is deeply merciful and wanted you to experience that mercy and to display that mercy to you eternally. Beyond that, he slaughtered his son for you to make your conversion a reality when you were his dead enemy. Our king died in order to rescue you as an expression of his love for you. That is humility-inducing truth. He's held none of your sins against you, not even today, but he's forgiven them all in Christ. Even today, as you sin, as you exalt yourself in pride, it won't be counted against you because his love doesn't change for you because it's not based on you. It's based on Christ. And if that's not enough, he has chosen, Almighty God, who appeared to Moses in the bush, has chosen to take up residence among us and with us, among sinful, frail, weak people, because he loves us and wants to see us progressively transformed in his image. And as we are transformed, any growth that happens in our lives through our striving is ultimately produced by the Spirit who dwells within us. So we can't even take credit for the fruit in our lives. Humility is very appropriate to the church of the living God. It's the very opposite of any esteem of ourselves, any self-esteem, to use a buzzword. We don't want to point to ourselves at all. We want to point only to God. And the grace of God and humility go together. See, grace is God's free gift. It's received by those with nothing in their hands to bring to God except sin. Nothing to boast of in themselves. In fact, we wouldn't even come unless God brought us there. Humility is based on the realization of our utter dependence on the grace of God. Humility is the first and most essential characteristic of the new humanity. That's why it starts here. Without it, you can trash the rest of it. 
To say it another way, pride is the greatest threat to God's new and unified humanity. Pride leads to all manner of division. When we're proud, we think highly of ourselves. We exalt ourselves. We esteem ourselves. We want others. We demand others to esteem us the way we esteem us. And because of this high view, we're easily offendable. We blindly think that we're always right. We don't listen. We seek to always justify and vindicate ourselves in an argument. We get angry when others don't bend to serve us or when things don't go our way, the way that we demand they should go. Forgiveness is very difficult, if not impossible, for the proud person. Why? Because you offended me. Right? And you need to pay for it. You can't just go free. But humility responds in the opposite way. It has a very different disposition. When we're humble, we recognize along with Paul that we're the chief of sinners. We're the chief of sinners. And as a result, a humble person is willing to admit when they've been wrong. Because they know they're often wrong. <laughs> Humility doesn't put up a fight. doesn't quarrel. People like this aren't overly sensitive. We say they have thick skin. They can take correction. In fact, they're thankful for the reproof. And will often invite it. Why? Because it enables them to be more like the Christ they love. And when it comes to forgiveness, they quickly and lavishly forgive when they're wrong. Doesn't mean it's easy. But they're glad to do so because they recognize the deep forgiveness that they've been given and how unworthy they were to receive it in the first place. So, after working through some of these things, like me... Um, maybe you're not as humble as you thought you were. And that's a great revelation. Because now, humility has the chance to grow in your heart. Right? That's the first step. We've got to be brought low. We've got to be more in accord with reality. You know, where things are really at. But it positions us for the grace of God. It positions us for God's favor. For growth. And Paul says our lives must be characterized by humility if we believe everything he's written in chapters 1 through 3. It's the only way we can live. And the beauty of this is that every time you're sinned against, or things don't go your way, or fill in the blank, every time that happens, you have the opportunity to cultivate humility. The opportunity to grow in it. So, it's an incredible virtue. And humility, we've got to move quickly, but humility leads to the second and and closely related uh, characteristic of the new humanity. Gentleness. Gentleness. And really, they go together. The outline doesn't really reflect that, but they, they really go together. With all humility and gentleness. It's kind of like a package. So what exactly is gentleness? You know, maybe probably a lot of things come to your mind when you think about this word. Well, it's often contrasted with being harsh, and that's good. It's kindness and tenderness, even in the face of provocation. 
and hardship. Say that again. It's kindness and tenderness, even right in the face of, of provocation. When you're provoked, in the face of hardship. So just envision an exasperating circumstance, okay? Whatever that is for you. Just fill in the blank. And then envision how you normally respond to that. (laughs) Put a person in that exasperating, an exasperating person. Let's put this, let's just personalize a little bit. And then how you respond, whether in your heart or out loud to that person. And there's probably a harsh response going on because you're exasperated by that person. What comes out of our mouths at, at the people who are exasperating is often not gentle. We get snarky, we're sarcastic, we're sharp. We raise our voice. We might call them names. We use speech that treats others with contempt. All of this is the opposite of gentleness. So what, ex- what exactly is it? Well, I think it's, it's there's self-control is, a, is an element to gentleness. Gentleness is self-controlled. It's welcoming. It's approachable. It's a kind word when we would expect retaliation. It's probably one of the best ways I've thought about it. Okay, a kind word when we would expect retaliation. And you all seen that. You're like, what? Like you just you just not like that, you know. That's a gentle response. It's tenderness in dealing with others who are perpetually offending you. That's gentleness. And Paul says that should characterize our lives as a Christian. Gentleness in the face of provocation from your church members. From your boundless folks that annoy you, provoke you, are immature, sin against you, gossip about you, gentleness should characterize our relationship with them. And if you can't be gentle, it's because you're proud and you're you're thinking highly of yourself. So you're only going to retaliate in some way when you're provoked. That's the only option for you, is to retaliate. Because you're proud. You're offended. But a humble person who understands who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them, isn't easily offended like we saw, and thus humility is the seedbed for gentle responses. Christ controls everything. He's got you. He ordained this circumstance. So I can respond with gentleness. It's okay. And this gentleness... If you, if you were just to kind of trace this out, chase it down in other passages, we would see that it's, it's fundamentally restorative. So it's not like gentleness never moves in or moves toward another person to restore them and like help them in their sin. It's not like you just get trampled on all the time, even though that is part of the, part of the Christian life. We do get trampled on, and that's okay. Gentleness is, hey, that's not good. This is harmful to you, and I want to move in there tenderly toward you like Christ moves in toward me and I want to help you. Gentleness is fundamentally restorative. Can you think about the significance of a church that's characterized by gentleness? Man. Imagine if Timberlake or if Boundless was characterized by gentleness in the face of provocation. How glorious would that be? How powerful would that be in the world? That's the vision, and that's the second basic, essential characteristic of the church. 
that Paul says should characterize his new humanity. Number three, forbearance. Forbearance. We'll cover these last two quickly. Forbearance. He says we should walk in a manner worthy with patience, bearing with one another in love. With patience, bearing with one another in love. I'm just capturing, trying to capture all that phrase with, with, one, with one word, forbearance. One thing I love about these characteristics is the assumption is we're not perfect and we're not going to be. Okay? We'll get to that more in just a minute. But Paul understands that this new humanity is not perfected. And in fact, he understands vividly that our growth is very progressive. It's very progressive. So that means we're going to have to be patient and put up with each other as we grow. And that's essentially what this characteristic is about. It's about forbearing with other people, getting up under them, being patient with them, putting up with each other, patiently enduring each other. And it's not some sort of passive task where you sort of like deal with this guy and then you go gossip about him behind their back. This is an active task where you know someone's less mature than you. You know they're sinning against you. You know they're prickly. You know it's hard to be friends with them. But you keep bearing along with them. You keep enduring with them. You keep being patient with them and, and repenting of that just sort of desire to throw in the towel or desire to just give up and um, just say good riddance to this person because they're not like you or whatever it is or they're annoying to you. That's not what we do in the church. That's not what we want to do in Boundless or in Timberlake. We want to bear with each other. Be patient with one another. And I would say there's at least three areas that we need to do this in. Or three, three areas that God expects us to bear with each other. In our differences, so we're just different. I mean, just look at it. Look at you. Look at me. I mean, there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's, there's differences abound. And they're not good or bad. They're, you know, ethnic differences, socioeconomic differences, uh, upbringing differences, educational differences, desire differences. I mean, there's, there's giftings, there's a variation. And that can sometimes rub each other. We can rub each other with those differences. And we've got to learn to, to bear with one another in those things. Area number one. Area number two, our preferences. Some of us have strong convictions about things that aren't delineated in Scripture that God Almighty has chosen to be silent about. But we've got to make decisions on those things. Will you or won't you drink alcohol? What kind of, you know, what, what kind of entertainments will you partake in? What will you not partake in? What kind of education will you participate in and, and have your kids participate in? And those kinds of things. Things that aren't delineated in Scripture. And it's good to have strong convictions about those things. Preferential convictions. But that's what they are. And we have to bear with one another in those things and say only what the Scriptures say. And finally, number three, in our sins. We have to bear with one another to be patient with one another in our sin patterns against one another. This doesn't mean you never say anything. We're going to get into that in several weeks about how to engage in sin. Or not in sin, but about sin in a believer's life. Okay? But... The fabric of our lives should be patience with people who are, who are sinning. Because guess what? People are patient with you on a daily basis, and God is infinitely patient with you. He's not always rebuking you for every little thing you do, okay? And so we want to be a culture, we want to have a culture of 
of grace that doesn't excuse sin or minimize it, but, but is patient and bears with one another, okay? And he knows that we, we, to bear with one another in patience or with patience because it won't be easy. That's going to be a challenge. It's going to require patience. It's going to require you to grow in that area. But we do it in love. We're motivated by love. And this is a great way to test your, your actual love for people. Do you do this? Like Christ-like love. Not like your emotions, but your, your, do you actually love people enough to do this? Do you actually love the body enough to bear with others in this way? And that can only spring, again, from the fountain of the love that you've experienced in Christ. So he treats you incredibly patiently. He bears with all of your weaknesses. He bore them for you in the cross. So that's, our, that's what we're drawn from here, to, to imitate and bend that out. So Paul said we should be humble, gentle, forbearing in the church. And all of this spills out to the fourth and final characteristic, which I'm just describing as diligence. Diligence. Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Eager, which I'm saying diligent. Diligent to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. What's he saying? Because I have like 30 seconds. He's saying, you should do everything in your power to keep the peace in your church. This should be on your top priority. Why? Because it's what the cross achieved. One new humanity. One. Hear that? One unified humanity. What happens when this is not on my priority list? How many of you had this as a New Year's resolution? You know, it's just typically not on our priority list, right? So what happens when it's not? Well, we don't resolve conflicts, but we let them smolder, and it grows into resentment and bitterness. We, we justify unreconciled relationships in our minds. We're content just to leave the church rather than to, to, to raise issues and work through them together with a spirit of cooperation we don't really think about the damage of gossip and we just freely demean others in private. I mean, we could just go on and on about this when we don't value unity. When we don't, what did he just say? The command is to just desire it, eagerly desire to maintain it. I.e., elevate it on your priority list because he knows we don't. So this is foundational. We should be eager to maintain this unity because, he says, this is the unity that we've entered into. Let's just read verses 4 through 6. He says, this supports what he just said, okay? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Do you get the point? How many? One. It's like, do everything to maintain that. You don't create it. Christ created it in the cross. But you can rupture it. So do everything in your power to maintain the unity. And this just, to pan out just for a second, this is what God promised would occur in the new covenant. He would make his people one. One. These are, as we fulfill these things, as we seek to reconcile, as we have awkward conversations, as we stick and stay, 
We are fulfilling prophecy in the Old Testament. We don't think about it like that. We're just we're we're too concerned with our, our, our preferences or our feelings or whatever they are to actually realize what's at stake in the maintenance of unity. And what we're going to see is as unity is maintained in a church, it is used greatly by God in the midst of this crooked world. So we're going to go there next time. But I, I love the realism of Paul in these opening first verses of the, of the second half of the chapter, or the second half of the book of Ephesians, where he goes right at it of things that are essential, essential characteristics of the new humanity. Without them, we will not grow. We will atrophy. And we wonder why there's no more power in our churches today. Think of how neglected these things are. And it's, 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 you know, we come into the church with this idea that we're not ever going to be hurt by another Christian. And if we are, something's wrong. That we should never be let down by anyone or any church leadership or anything like that. And we come in with these expectations. And it's great when those get smashed. The quicker, the better. Because that is not the vision for the church. Yes, we don't want to let each other down. We don't want to sin against each other, but it's going to happen. So we've got to be equipped with these kinds of things to know, okay, this isn't a detour. This isn't plan B. God wants us to work in and through these things for his glory to maintain unity. And all of these sins are an occasion for us to grow up into the new humanity that he's called us to. So sweet. So get ready for more of that, because it's coming in the back half of this letter. These are the characteristics of the new humanity.